This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Caselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, five million and rising. As of last week, the number of Americans who've signed up for insurance on the health insurance exchanges has topped the five million mark. And just a few days left to go before open enrollment closes at the end of March. CMS Administrator Marilyn Tavener made the announcement last week through her blog post. And she said business really picked up steam in the last couple of weeks, seeing the most activity since December on the federal health exchange change portal healthcare.gov. Analysts were expecting this uptick and the deadline pressure has seemed to spur more interest in signing up. We won't know for a few weeks uh, what the actual breakdown is in terms of demographics and whether more of those healthy young invincibles decided to seek coverage. The White House is trying outreach uh, as part of the March Madness frenzy, targeting that audience with marketing campaigns. Well, we like the March Madness crowd. And a survey recently showed that many in the insurance industry are kind of concerned about about a slew of new regulations governing participation in the exchanges for 2015. Apparently, hundreds of new regulations were proposed, and that will, of course, impact their business model for the coming year. Of biggest concern, it seems, are regulations that may force plans to increase the number of clinicians and hospitals allowed within plans. There has been pushback from consumers over the loss of access to their preferred care providers and hospitals on some of those new exchange plans. And essentially what these new plans are attempting to do is to make sure that any plan sold on the exchange has a significant representation of local clinicians and hospital choices that are available to consumers on the exchange with the emphasis on giving more choice and more protection to the consumer. But, of course, the insurance industry analysts say that adds more uncertainty to the mix when it comes to forecasting for the coming year. So many changes are in play right now and just a tough business reality for many insurers. All of this really comes down to an important question, Margaret. How will all of this change lead to improved outcomes and lower cost in healthcare? And our guest today is a global innovator in the developing connected health systems that should do just that. Dr. Joseph Kividar is the founder and director of the Center for Connected Health at Partners Health in Boston. He's been developing care plan platforms utilizing telemedicine protocols and connected health devices uh, to bring the clinician right into the patient's lives. Well, Dr. Kavidar is a true innovator, Mark, in an area of healthcare that we know shows so much promise in helping us achieve these goals of better outcomes and lower costs. And Lori Robertson, our managing editor of factcheck.org, will be stopping by. She's uncovered another misstatement about health policy spoken in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at CHC Radio or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Joseph Kavidar in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. It's down to the wire on the open enrollment stage. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid announcing last week more than 5 million people have signed up for insurance coverage on the exchanges, both of federal exchanges and state-based ones. But it's been a slog getting to that number considering all the issues with the online marketplaces, some resolved, some lingering. The White House is targeting the youth population in the final stretch, borrowing on the March Madness theme by asking young folks what are 16 sweet reasons why you should have health coverage. CMS says business has been as brisk as it was in December leading up to the start of 2014. 
Meanwhile, some ducks are concerned they're going to be holding the bag when it comes to these newly insured, some of whom have sought care before their 90-day grace period on the insurance side is over. They're worried they won't be compensated for care delivered. And insurers are in a quandary over how to prepare their actuarial tables for the coming year. They still don't know what their costs will be with all of these newly signed customers and a new set of regulations governing what must be covered by insurers participating in the online insurance marketplaces is sending ripples of uncertainty through the industry. So back to those challenges. Massachusetts is now hashing it out legally with CGI, the same company that botched the federal health exchange, healthcare.gov. CGI also did the Massachusetts exchange that has been plagued with problems. And small businesses in Oregon seeking insurance coverage for their employees can seek tax credits for the purchase, even if they don't purchase insurance through the Oregon Exchange, which has been and continues to be dysfunctional since day one. And in Texas, where there was no expansion of Medicaid and no insurance exchange set up and a concerted political push to thwart efforts of insurance marketplace navigators, their enrollment numbers are lagging. Not tonight. I have a headache. Is leading to a headache of another kind. Clinicians are still overusing brain scans to get to the bottom of chronic headache issues. Overuse of brain scans for headaches persists despite guidelines. According to a national study, more than 12% of the 51 million Americans seeking attention for a headache or migraine were given brain scans. According to the study in the Journal of American Medical Association's Internal Medicine, it showed that brain scans like MRI and CT scans are still being substantially overused. I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Joseph Kavidard, founder and director of the Center for Connected Health, a division of Partners Healthcare in Boston, an innovative healthcare delivery model that uh, uses health information technology to bring clinicians into the patient's world. Dr. Kavidar is the co-founder of Health Rages, a personalized health technology company offering a wide range of health and wellness self-management programs. Dr. Kavidar is the past president and board member of the American Telemedicine Association, where he received the Individual Leadership Award for significant contributions to connected health and telemedicine. Dr. Kavidar's other awards include one of the top 10 internet smart doctors in the world, and he writes extensively on connected health and is an associate professor of dermatology at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Kavidar, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm delighted to be with you. So you launched the Center for Connected Health back in 2004 with the uh, proposition that healthcare delivery and outcomes could be vastly improved by harnessing the power of technology to move healthcare from the clinician's office into the patient world. And obviously, over that time, technology has changed dramatically. And healthcare isn't really known as an adapter of cutting-edge technologies. And yet, we're still in what appears to be the infancy of using these technologies in healthcare. So tell us about your vision for the Center for Connected Health as an incubator for telemedicine-facilitated models of care, and what innovations have you been working on? Well, our vision is a simple one. We would like to do away with this idea that healthcare has to be episodic. And if you think about it, really, it's the only service that you would get now, I think, in the world where you still have to visit someone in a physical location Mm -hmm. to get a service. Everything else is continuous online, on your mobile phone, offered to you wherever you are. Uh, We think healthcare needs to move in that direction, not just because everybody else has, 
but because it allows for a more integrated, continuous care experience. You, your health is with you 24 hours a day. There's no reason your health care shouldn't be with you 24 hours a day. And in our view, the amount of times that you actually should travel somewhere to be in the same room well, the healthcare provider will become. Um, I want to reference a recent health affairs article where you laid out the promise telemedicine holds to improve care delivery, particularly around managing chronic illness and certainly patients aging in place. On top of all that, we have obesity, we have diabetes, we have shortages of primary care providers. We have all these perfect storms that lead us to look at telemedicine and connected health, if you will, as a potential solution. So. What do you see, given how much people struggled just to get past the 50% mark on implementing electronic health records, what do you see for the real path forward and the roadmap and the progress that we're likely to see, particularly in the ambulatory care space? Uh, You alluded earlier, I've, I've been at this a long time, 20 years altogether. The last 10 years or so, we adopted the moniker Connected Health for what we do. And It really feels like a logarithmic uh, change most recently. Mm -hmm. I point to things like the suite of services and technologies from iHealth. That's just one company, but you can get an FDA-approved device from the Apple Store, download their app onto your phone, and be sharing data with uh, your healthcare provider very easily now. And that whole Uh, idea about tracking and and sharing and making data available easily from the home to the provider is a solved problem. And and even as recently as as five years ago, it wasn't. So that's really encouraging. And the other thing that's driving adoption quite rapidly is the change in reimbursement for healthcare organizations and physicians moving from fee-for-service reimbursement to what's commonly called now value-based reimbursement or a reimbursement for uh, population-level care. And I can tell you from personal experience here uh, in Boston at Partners Healthcare, once you cross that threshold of thinking about population-level care, it really changes the way doctors think about virtual care and allows them to really open up all kinds of opportunities for doing anything from monitoring their chronically ill patients in the home to virtual follow-up visits to consulting virtually with other specialists, a whole variety of opportunities that they're embracing, not because of the payment change, but that really helps facilitate it. Uh, Dr. Kavidar, back in 2010, you formed a company within the Center for Connected Health called HealthRageous, uh, which provides this technology platform to integrate all this patient-generated data and allowing patients to stream real-time health data to clinicians to coordinate their care. And so tell us, tell our listeners uh, about the system you've created and are they available to clinicians and patients outside the partner system? Let me start uh, briefly with HealthRageous, which was formed in 2010 to offer connected health services to employers and health plans based on some research that we did at our center and the actual transaction was that they outlicensed some technology uh, that we built here and then they were acquired uh, just last summer. So they uh, were in the marketplace, uh, had some success, and then were acquired. Uh, you know, what we've learned about chronic illness management, and we've studied it very carefully, is that if you combine really two 
design principles. One is feedback loops, and, and that just means anything that I can measure about you objectively can be used as a feedback loop. If you're a, a heart failure patient, typically it's daily weight. If you have high blood pressure, it's your blood pressure readings. If you are diabetic, it might be your, your blood glucose readings. But those things, if presented to you as a feedback loop, will keep your health top of mind Certainly in the beginning of the program, they act as strong behavior change agents because you're constantly being reminded of this value that you're trying to titrate. Over time, what we find is that that particular stimulus doesn't reach the same level of interest because it is the same stimulus. And we have to develop what we call motivational overlays to help people interact with those feedback loops. And we do that mostly these days in the form of having clinicians involved, typically nurses, pharmacists, nurse educators uh, involved with those patients. And they get those clinicians will get a population view of their patient population. Again, let's say it's our blood pressure connect program. The clinician that's managing those patients will have a dashboard view of all the patients and of course, the software allows that person to see the patients who need their help the most, focus their attention on people that are having the worst uh, outcomes at the moment, and that's a way we can spread clinicians across larger populations of patients. We find that that approach does improve outcomes. We've showed outcome improvements in hypertension, diabetes, and heart failure, and in all cases, can link those back to more efficient use of resources or a return on investment. So. Those would be some of the best examples I could give of how connected health can improve chronic illness management. Well, Dr. Kavita, you said uh, earlier that we really solved in the last five years the technology issue of how uh, to have the devices in the home that can uh, collect the data under the patient's direction and communicate it to the provider office. And it sounds like you and others working in this field have, if not solved, certainly made great progress in understanding how we activate patients and engage patients. And so I guess I'm left a little bit with the question of where is the Framingham study of interconnected health beginning? And are we doing the kind of large-scale studies of the impact on outcomes that will help us tell over time what's ripe for very large-scale implementation? Well, absolutely. In planning, we're, we're working on a project right now that, uh, that has exactly that vision where we can recruit patients from, well, starts with hundreds, but of course the goal is thousands, to have them continuously offer uh, monitoring of their lifestyle, bringing those data into a database and following their health outcomes. Another exciting variable is to integrate their genetic data into that. That's something we have capacity of doing. I guess the best analogy maybe is the way companies like Amazon and Netflix understand your buying behaviors at a very individual level, but also know how they can stock their warehouses. We're also working with a company called MD Revolution, and that's their vision as well, that they they have a platform that brings in a variety of these data points, and they have a very robust coaching interface around it. Uh, they'd like to do a long-term study with us, bringing their data into a database so that they can really learn over time how their intervention affects folks, both at the individual and the population level. It's a great question, and it's sorely needed. Up until now, really, all of the information we've had on studying these interventions has been for 
you know, anywhere from three to 12 months, and people haven't gone much beyond mm-hmm. that. So the time is ripe to get out there and really learn how it works long term. We're speaking today with Dr. Joseph Gavidar, founder and director of the Center for Connected Health, a division of Partners Healthcare in Boston. So Dr. Kavidar, um trying to think through the sort of issues around workflow first. Uh, and I wonder how much work you're doing on that health technology has certainly changed uh, the dynamic for how a practice works. And so it starts with uh, an electronic huddle. It moves uh, to the organization of pods and the interrelationship uh, and interdisciplinary partnership between a uh, primary care provider, uh, its teams managing this. And then it's supported by the data, right? So having the technology, tell us the problems you've had in the pushback in those communities as you've thought through the application of technology on a very antiquated system. The good news is we're making a lot of progress. I guess the pushback originally came, there were several forms. One was, gee, this is just another thing to do in an already overloaded clinician's day. So you have to then help that individual or that class of individuals reimagine their days. It's that kind of thing where virtual care now feels like just an add-on, but as time goes on, we'll see those efficiencies because, as I've alluded to, we're spreading human resources on the provider side across larger populations of patients and being much more thoughtful and strategic based on data flows on which clinicians interact with which patients at which times in order to help them achieve a higher state of health. The second phase of pushback is around reimbursement. I I, uh, had one doctor once say to me about our blood pressure management program, I really like the program, works well, I'm not going to enroll any more patients because they don't come in the office. Mm -hmm. So that's a a barrier we've crossed now because we're now thinking, as I said earlier, uh, as an accountable care organization. And we've assured our primary care doctors that if they do virtual care, we'll make sure that they're compensation doesn't take a hit as a result. So those are two. I think the third is integrated into the electronic workflow, and we've completed a system here at Partners where we can take both self-reported data from our patients, which is valuable for our patient-reported outcomes project, and device data from our patients and display them in both our electronic record for providers and in the patient portal for our patients. So the patients have one unified way to get all their health data partners, including remote monitoring data. And clinicians, when they're in the middle of dealing with a patient the electronic record, will be able to call those up within the electronic record. Uh, And that sort of is the final uh, hurdle in the workflow. Now it's a matter of just as you alluded to, getting people used to new care models and and, uh, how these tools can fit in with that. But we've made a lot of progress and uh, the future is bright. Well, I think the future is bright, and we've been watching what you're doing for quite a while. We know there are many hurdles on the path to innovation, but one of the particular ones uh, of interest to us, of course, is do these new patterns of care, new technologies work well, and are they made available? Do we do what's needed to make them available to multiple populations? And of course, Uh, people who speak a language other than English, uh, people who are disproportionately low income or challenged by health disparities are a particular concern of ours. And I know that's a concern of your organization as well. Maybe you could share with us a little bit about how this is working across the board in multiple populations. You know, 
You know, are there multiple languages available? Are they low literacy accessible? You know, do they work across different cultures? Who's thinking about that within your organization? How are you factoring our very global citizenry into your planning and thinking? Really terrific questions. And and I would say three things uh, in response. One is we purposefully work with a lot of our community health centers as early adopters of our programs because they're right there in the neediest areas of the greater Boston community. So that's one right off the start as we try to get in there and and those provide us the real world examples of how this is going to work with folks that are uh, less fortunate. Uh, We've we've made an effort uh, to have multiple languages on almost all of our programs never perfect and never as many as we'd like and there's always room to improve on that but it's certainly something we've done and continue to to strive to do more and more on and the third uh, perhaps most uh, i think exciting uh answer is the, the mobile revolution it disproportionately has affected uh folks in lower income and and um minorities so that when we started doing delivering a lot of our programs by mobile device, the first thing we did on purpose was text messaging because we knew that would be a a digital divide cross uh, for us. And it sure worked out that way. Again, we worked, for instance, some of the first programs we did were pregnant teens and uh, 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 folks suffering from addiction on the medication Suboxone. We really drilled into the neediest parts of our uh, population for those early mobile health programs and showed how uh, successful they could be in those populations. People who have uh, phones where you, you buy the, the a new SIM card every so often, just all those challenges exactly. we've really dealt with. So uh, we're we're never perfect and we're, we're always making effort to be better, but we've made some strides. Well, as a center for innovation and a font of new ideas, the Center for Connected Health is looking at always looking at the future, and uh, you've uh, started to really focus in on uh, better management of chronically ill and uh, and aging patients to, to now promoting prevention among your patient population. Your newest project is uh, Wellocracy, is uh, focused in on the wellness movement of the future and probably builds on uh, many of the initiatives we're seeing out there, certainly the First Lady on Let's Move, but you probably drilled down further than that. Tell our listeners about the Wellocracy sort of movement and your thoughts as you look out to the future. Well, we we started with the realization uh, of how we became what we thought was very, we still think very, uh, we're very good at understanding how how patients and why patients adopt these uh, connected health technologies. And one thing that came through loud and clear from our patients over the years was they, they'll use a connected health tool set, a, a monitor, a, a way of relaying their information, um, largely because they feel their doctor is looking at the data or a nurse in the practice and that that individual is finding value in it. Uh, so it's what we call the sentinel effect, meaning I'm going to uh, behave differently if I know someone's watching, particularly someone who's an authority figure. And we looked at that success and we said, gee, I, I wonder how much of our success is about that feedback loop being objective and then having the uh, sentinel effect, the, the authority figure, the nurse or the doctor that can call you out on your behavior and set you straight. And if so, and that works so well in our experience, 
how would it translate into the consumer world where we don't have that same link to an authority figure necessarily? Does that mean it's your Facebook friends? Does that mean we need to build certain kinds of incentives into programs? Uh, we're all different. We're all motivated differently. So I might design something uh, for each of you that's quite different than I would for the other because you're motivated differently. So we wanted to take all those questions out and, and learn in real time from consumers about how they adopt connected health and how they stay motivated to stick with tracking. So the first uh, um, goal here is to is to use Wellocracy as a platform to, to help people understand the value of tracking their health. The second uh, goal is to help them understand what motivates them so they make wiser choices about the trackers they choose and the mobile apps they choose to manage their health. And the third goal is for us to learn about that process because as a healthcare uh, organization, we fully expect to be in the wellness business in the next few years. And we, we realize that that's a very different business than the patient mm -hmm. care business. And we want to learn how consumers adopt these technologies. We've been speaking today with Dr. Joseph Kavitar, founder and director of the Center for Connected Health, a division of Partners Healthcare in Boston. You can learn more about his groundbreaking work by going to connected-health.org. Dr. Kavitar, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. It's been a real pleasure. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Are there more uninsured today than when the Affordable Care Act was passed? That's what former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin told her fellow conservatives at the annual Conservative Political Action Conference in March. Palin said, quote, there are more uninsured today than when Obama began all of this. But there's no evidence of that. Annual census surveys show the percentage of uninsured Americans has dropped since 2010 when the Affordable Care Act became law. 16.3% of Americans were uninsured in 2010. That dropped to 15.7% in 2011 and 15.4% in 2012. The raw numbers have gone down, too, from 50 million uninsured in 2010 to 48 million in 2012. Gallup surveys on this topic also show the percentage of uninsured hit a five-year low in the first two months of 2014. It is too early to determine the full impact of the law as the major provisions aiming to increase insurance coverage were only recently put into place. The Medicaid expansion and policies sold on state and federal marketplaces didn't take effect until the beginning of this year. And Democrats have overstated the impact so far of the exchanges on the uninsured. But there's no doubt those provisions will extend coverage. Congressional budget experts estimate that the law will reduce the number of the uninsured by 13 million by the end of this year, and that in 2024, there will be 25 million fewer uninsured Americans because of the ACA. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Roberts. Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare.
Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Food labeling could be going one step further than simple calorie counts in the future. Public health researchers at the University of North Carolina have some pep in their step for another approach to getting consumers' attention when pondering those food and beverage choices. There's growing interest in a new approach to displaying calorie counts next to menu items. Instead, show the amount of exercise that would be required to burn off those calories consumed from drinking, say, a 20-ounce cola. They developed an icon symbolizing a person walking and how far that person would have to walk to erase the calories they were just about to consume. They conducted a randomized study to determine what, if any, effect the measure would have on consumer choices. And we showed them basically a full menu with all items. And so one group was randomized to no information except the food items. Another one was a menu of pretty much every item, exact same way, and it had the calories. And then a third option had calories plus minutes to walk with our little figure, and it had, you know, for example, 91 minutes. And then finally, a fourth menu that showed the same exact thing with the same exact figure, with miles to walk, so it might say 5.1 miles. Dr. Anthony Vieira, professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill School of Public Health, he said the study showed quite clearly that when consumers saw that consuming a food or drink item would require them to walk five miles to burn those calories off, as opposed to just seeing the calories, it had a direct impact on the choice. So if you looked at total calories ordered, when you were shown no label, the average calories ordered were 1,020, when you were shown calories only, which is a you know sort of the policy, the current policy, the average order was 927 calories, and when shown calories plus miles, the average order was 826 calories. So as you can see, there was a definite decrease in calories when you're shown calories plus miles. The results of the initial study were so conclusive, they are now scaling up their research to test it in restaurants. Restaurant food labeling, showing a consumer how much exercise will be required to burn off the calories consumed helping them comprehend the actual calorie value of the foods they choose, and maybe thus positively impacting their intention to consume fewer calories more wisely? Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.